Hello and welcome back to Play to Find Out, the Dungeon World podcast from the Dungeon World Discord. It's me, Arthur, your co-host, and joining me today, as always, we've got Eamon. Eamon, how you doing? I'm doing so good. How are you? It's been a while for us. It's been so long since the last time we recorded. August has been a crazy month for us. We've been traveling and moving, yeah. taking vacations. Voyaging. Yeah, and it's so nice, Eamon, that we can finally get a chance to sit back, collect our thoughts, and chat for about an hour or so about Dungeon World here in the bridge bar of this incredible Zeppelin. I know, like the I, I um, I wish that I could bring my fiance in here, but she's a little scared of heights. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm loving it. I mean, I can see, man, I can see the Great Wall down there. I can see all the way to the Northlands. Like, wow. Yeah, it's a spectacular view, and what a luxurious way to travel. So much better than horse and carriage. I appreciate the uh, sort of apropos effect of drinking uh, fizzy lifting drinks and uh, fizzy mm. beverages while on a Zeppelin bar. Yes, I've got a fizzy lifting cocktail over here, and it is great. Mm-hmm. Ah, yes. The, uh-huh. the scenery, spectacular. The situation, superb. Now let's get into talking about a highlight from your recent game, Eamon. I understand you have something today. Yes. So um, my games have been kind of a stew of various different experiences lately um, because I'm going through the process of just getting fully set up in a new city. I'm in uh, in the Nashville area now, and it's about my... I'm entering into my third week here. We're recording this on a weekend. And... Um, so I've been using a lot a variety of tools to just try to find out like where are people in this area and different things like that. So I've used using Meetup, which is a lot of times my go-to because I find a lot of uh, adult uh, gamers will use that as a way to coordinate, and it's a kind of a way to get a pulse on like where people are and like where local game stores are. And so I found some local game stores. I found some local groups. There was an organization called um, Naga. The a Nashville area gamers association. And I found that they had some groups set up. Um, and I had even a kind of weird effect where like I was reading one of my, um, OSR blogs that I read sometimes and someone that I had met in real life, like two days ago, I saw them like commenting on the blog and I was like, Oh, I just met that guy. And like the comment was literally them saying like, Hey, the Nashville area has a good, you know, good, uh, representation of people in the OSR. But anyway, two games this past week um one was an rpg night that that same gentleman was hosting at his house um but it was kind of rpg in air quotes because when i got there everyone was playing board games um but there was one group that was um starting up a fifth edition game um and they were the only people really playing rpgs and so i asked if i could join and they were only in their like second session of a what i assume to be a campaign that's going to be ongoing playing tomb of annihilation um which was a little weird for me because i haven't played um mainstream stuff and that's i I mean pretty mainstream they're playing fifth edition fairly by the book and that's a recent published module i think just from earlier this year or last year the tomb of annihilation um but my highlight from it is i um good it was was fun characterization and like party dynamics um i i don't want to pat myself on the back (laughs) too hard but um i jumping into a group is always the, of strangers is always a fun challenge for me and my goal personally for that session was to have a character that had personal goals but didn't detract from what the group was doing and so i made a first level wizard in uh, fifth edition and he was like a private investigator that he was wearing like a trench coat and he would have this like 
floppy fedora, even though they were in Schultz, which is this jungle uh, continent. It's extremely hot, so I would just describe him just sweating profusely all the time. And he had a little shoulder holster where he held his wand. And he was always asking people, like, have you heard anything about the murder of Arden Hearthbrook? Are you complicit in the murder of Arden Hearthbrook? Um, where were you on this date? Like, so he was just interrogating every NPC we came across because the part of the reason that he was on this co- on this continent was um, that he was trying to solve a murder, which is a light enough framework that he could just go along with whatever the group was doing, but just also at the same time try to collect clues and whatnot. And one of the players afterwards said that it was really fun to play with my character, so I felt good that uh, that role play was well received. That's awesome. I was on Twitter earlier and I saw a tweet kind of about this same idea of how do you get your character into an established group or really just in general? Cut out there. How do you make sure that you're making character choices where your character is not stepping on the toes of everybody else's? Um, and they made a point that I thought was really good about how we should always be playing character concepts that can fit into a group and make it a positive change for the group. You know, characters that are making choices that are fun for everybody, not just fun for ourselves. And it sounds like that's exactly what you did. And what a cool way to do it by having a concrete personal goal that was tied directly to the setting and that gave you you and your group something to be actively engaged with through that character. That's really fun. On that same note, Arthur, um, earlier that night, actually, before I got settled into that game, um, while people were just sort of milling around, uh, just awkwardly talking as geeks are wont to do and um, talking about um, the games they've run in the past, people were relating... Um, reasons that one one pl- one person specifically was re- relating reasons that he doesn't play RPGs, and it was just this slew of experiences with uncooperative characters, and I felt so bad. Um, oh no! Because he was he was talking about how like his like he would play with his like friends, older kids or whatever, and uh, they would always make characters that are just totally antithetical to the party that would like start fights and then just walk away and like leave the rest of the party to fight or just um be just totally amoral or just and I was like the alignment system at work again, ladies and gentlemen, giving people, mm-hmm. <laughs> giving people justification for playing just irritating, yeah. irritating it's, characters. It's what my guy would do. So obviously Ugh. it's fine for me to derail everybody else's fun. Ugh. Yeah. Terrible. Um, and it's so easy to avoid. And I think we'll talk a little bit about avoiding that kind of thing and strategies for managing that at a table later on in the episode. But for now, it's time for us to jump on into our adventure workshop. Eamon, you want to tee this one up for us? Sure thing. All right, Adventure Workshop. So as we're kind of sailing across all these lands below, Arthur, I can't help but think of just different lands that I've been to and uh, some of them that I hope to go to in the future that I've just read about in the in the libraries of lore that I've happened to come across. And it made me want to kind of bring up this conversation about setting depth, uh, detail, and keeping it fresh and a few angles there. Uh, I'm interested in how to make the settings for our game strike a happy medium between being not cliche, but also not being so weird that we can't find foothold and that there's this cognitive load. Um, and I'll explain that in a bit. And how that actually looks in practice, like where the details fall. So it's not just big monologue and the DM trying to show a slideshow to the characters mm-hmm. instead of letting them actually be in that world. Um and then I'd like to talk about some worlds that are like perfect for this, and then maybe w- uh, ways that we can learn lessons to make our own. Sounds um, good. 
the first thing that I, I want to get into is just like what I meant by that spectrum. So on one end, we have the land of default here. Um, in, in the game Magica, which was this, uh, old video game, um, for PC, I believe. And, uh, I think the sequels were for other platforms, but anyway, you played, um, the, the game was sort of a sort of tongue in cheek fantasy game. And so it was intentionally set in this, like, generic fantasy world. Like, even in the trailers, there was sort of meta humor where they're saying only up to four wizards can save the kingdom. And, mm-hmm. um, they're talking about the land of default and, like, all that stuff. And sometimes our games can do that because we just want people to be able to um, have this shared space. Like a lot of D&D games fall into that sometimes. Maybe they're not necessarily in Faerun, but we want to allow people to bring their characters that are already made to the table. So we feel like we can't rule anything out. Like, of course, there's elves. Of course, there's dwarves. Of course, there's all these things. And they work just like you'd expect them to, because why not? And it might be hard to make things matter when, when it's so sort of worn and tried and true which isn't to say that we should just burn down the establishment cast those things aside because not everyone has played as much rpgs as all, all of us have and there are ways to make those things fresh but that's just one end of the spectrum the other side is just crazy uh just abstract art gonzo world where nothing works the way you think it would and that threshold is different for different people for example i love uh numenera from Monty Cook Games and that whole setting. And it's a very weird setting. It's basically Earth, but a billion years in the future. Somehow, um, some civilization has figured out how to make the world not blow up, like by getting swallowed by the sun, how to sort of like mess with the stars and stuff. And in that situation, uh, that civilization died and another rose up and another rose up. And basically, we're in the ninth major civilization, but just the beginning of it. So it's kind of this world where everyone's squatting on the ruins of ancient things. But so it's a very, a lot, it's a lot of cognitive load. Like the rule book is massive and there's all this type. I mean, the rules themselves aren't that complex, but the setting is just highly detailed and nothing is stuff that you would expect, um, which is cool. But then players are just like, they don't know what their characters are sort of allowed to do. They don't know what their characters would know and they don't have an idea of what's baseline. And some people have leveraged a criticism against that game as just, being just too far from baseline fantasy to easily slip into and have fun in. Um, and I've kind of experienced that a little bit with Invisible Sun, although I've been trying to lean into that because it is so... Um, I've, I've been trying to just use the weirdness of it to just make it open instead of making it like narrow and being like, no, you can't do that because actually things in this world work this way. But does that make sense, Arthur, the, the sort oh, of spectrum there? Absolutely. In my head, I can definitely picture the, the different notches along the way as well where you go from the lord of the rings sort of very iconic version of fantasy uh, into something that's maybe a little bit weirder maybe sort of a conan the barbarian sort of moment where you can recognize some of the tropes but then some of the other tropes are abandoning you or alternately establish we are establishing new tropes and then you know all the way out further and further from there i think probably thor ragnarok is probably somewhere along the way in that list you know you got your fantasy setting but your context is so different and so dramatically weirder and i i totally get where you're coming from on this i had an experience with the the far end of the spectrum of just cognitive load actually in one of the games i played this past week which was weird for me because i i've experienced enough fantasy worlds that that rarely happens but i was i jumped in on this table and i didn't know what we're gonna be playing beforehand and they wanted to play i think it was called like 
something of the pedal throne and it was set in the game world of Tecumel, which is like a East Asian sort of inspired fantasy game. And I was just asking the GM like, okay, is, is there magic in this world? Like what's the sort of technology level? I was just asking these questions and he was having kind of a hard time explaining it. And so I was just kind of like, who even do I want my character to be? Cause I have no idea what's going on. And he had just had, just had this huge world map of hard to pronounce names. And I was just like, Oh my gosh, I'll just play a rice farmer. Yeah, I mean, that sounds like a reasonable way to approach it. Go with something that is extremely basic and appropriate in the setting and then figure out how it will grow from there. But also, yeah. you know, that's not a great thing for a GM to be throwing someone into. I can't convey the level of technology. I can't convey the level of magic in this world. Then why are we playing in it? At a certain point, as a table, we should be able to agree, even if I don't know. Which actually is my strategy for managing this stuff pretty explicitly. I try not to go into any setting knowing everything about it. I think I've talked before on the show about how I'll sometimes come up with pages and pages of documentation for it that go out the window as soon as a player says something that I like better. You know, I think we'll talk about this in great detail as we get deeper and deeper into our depth conversation, but it doesn't need to be... I think the key way to manage this stuff is to just ask questions and use the answers, which is so often what we say on this show. Oh, absolutely. And I couldn't agree with you more, Arthur, there. That one's got to go in your GM's pocket immediately. Like, you got to kill your darlings no matter what it is. Like, if it's the setting and you're more interested in your own fan fiction than what's happening at the table, then you're not playing to find out. And it's sort of this mother may I game where everyone's asking the GM for permission to be a part of this world building exercise that we're all supposed to be uh, doing. That's not to say that, like, narrative control... Uh, that there shouldn't be a, a, a sort of GM as the art director, as like the guider of, of keeping things cohesive. But again, it should be consensual, obviously. The um, the other thing that I was going to say is if you want to help people, especially new players, just be on board and like be in the same headspace as you, it's really handy to provide them some sort of touchstone that they might have heard of fictionally. Um, even if you have to say like three things and be like, it's like Robocop, but also with spyro the purple dragon or like something really weird just to like let them know what it is um and if you can't provide that people are going to be really lost like the first time i play blades in the dark with people i say it's like peaky blinders and it's like dishonored uh and and that gets them instantly instantly into like the dark victorian headspace with the sort of the correct steampunk elements that i'm kind of looking for but with the game that i was playing this past week like they couldn't provide any touchstones i was like is it like a kind of a shogun thing or like a wuxia thing and they were like no no and i was like okay but what is it like surely this isn't so revolutionary if it's been around as long as you guys say because they said it was like some game from like the 80s or earlier right but yeah I, if you if you if you have a fictional touchstone it's gonna be a lot easier for people totally i played in a one shot which is actually a second one shot in the same setting but I, this was the first that i participated in and one thing that that GM did masterfully well was set a touchstone. We we said Avatar The Last Airbender is our touchstone, not just for, you know, the setting and the characters and whatnot, but also for the structure of the adventure that we're in the last episode of a multiple seasons long arc. And we've played an earlier episode before, and then many episodes happened between now and then. That worked really well as a way to set a, set a touchstone for us all to have in common because we could just say, oh, does it feel like a finale right now? It sounds mm -hmm. like, though, um, 
one thing that that game didn't have was the sort of cross section of these three in influences that all come together in this this and this way which i don't think is required but it is something that we didn't have we sort of leaned heavily into one core concept rather than going in it in a wider direction absolutely um that i think provides the right sort of everyone being on the same page where you can get into that sort of little pocket and just start just rocking where like you're just having great role play everyone's banging all the cylinders you know exactly what's going on um and there's that like you said the narrative consensus and the tonal consensus of people being not only do we know what this world's um looks like but we know what it should play like it should play like a finale would play out um i'm interested now in talking a little bit about um how to make our games varied like if, if we're taking that default fantasy world as the baseline how to sort of spicing some things in there without just simply throwing in other cultures like how to make it different a, a lot of times the keyword that you see online when people are talking about this is weird because it's just the only thing they can have to come to mind they say weird fantasy is just their way of saying anything that's not default you know default right. D D. Uh, what are some of your favorite um, settings that you've seen out there that have just been so different than that baseline, but easy to slip into? Totally. One setting that I want to shout out to, even though it's not, I think, a published adventure module or anything, is the Friends at the Table hack of Blades in the Dark that they used for their Merielda arc. Uh, mm. Friends at the Table is an actual play podcast. They play various games as a medium for telling stories in a way that I'm sure many of our listeners are familiar with. One thing that they did as an introductory arc into their core dungeon world setting was switch gears a little bit and play a world building game and then lead that world building game into blades in the dark and the world building game that they chose the quiet years one we've talked about before and i was thinking about that recently in part because one thing that the quiet year does mechanically at the very beginning before anything else is ask about resources what resources are abundant which ones are scarce and i think that that question is a great way to get started thinking about what is weird about your, or weird is wrong. What is away from the baseline of your fantasy world? What resources matter? What resources are abundant? Which ones are scarce? Is knowledge abundant? Is uh, fertility abundant? Is food abundant? Food is, a, is an easy one to work with because we're all very familiar with it. But what does it mean that food is abundant here or that food is scarce? I think one way we can break away from our defaults is to think about what sorts of resources we have in our default and how we can subvert that or change that. It's a great uh, point of inspiration as we start thinking about new worlds. A setting that I'm running currently has an abundance of bureaucracy and an abundance of sort of people who are able to answer any question or do anything, but it has a lack of sort of access to those things. If you want to get an answer to a question, you might have to go to three different bureaus over the course of three days in order to get the answers you need. But you're guaranteed to get those answers when you get there. That sounds like real life, except for the guarantee part. Yeah. Oh gosh, I've been on so many paper chases. Uh-huh. The, the resources thing, I think, is a good point because the sort of rules of the road are changed, and that's almost jumping ahead into like how we make those worlds feel different like moment to moment um i think one of my favorites that does that well is veins of the earth which i've talked about many times in this podcast mm -hmm. um just because it the book itself describing veins of the earth um does such a great job of talking about like what makes the veins different both cult culturally um they talk about how um 
uh, there's there's a part of the book talking about how can you tell when you're in the veins because the veins aren't just underground in general. They're like a certain, and it's not just a certain depth underground. It's sort of like when the culture sort of bleeds into, um, you're in the you're in the veins. So there's a difference just between your average dungeon, which um, people that live in the veins would consider the equivalent of someone trying to compare a pond to the ocean, whereas like deep in the earth is that's like the real dark that's like the real veins and uh so there's a section talking about how do you know you're in the veins and one of them says um when you've traveled a full invisible day down basically when you've traveled for a full day going nothing but deeper uh without seeing the sun then you're you might be edging onto the rim of the veins and another one says when you reach a place where a mouthful of flesh costs the same as an hour of light which costs the same as a silver piece then you're in the veins where um, it's almost more important to have light than it is to have money and and food is just as important and so they're, they're they're kind of showing that like the values and the resources down there are totally different in fact light in that game is basically the same thing as money your money is measured in looms which is how many hours of light you have which is a direct translation to how much cash you have because you can literally like, trade in that like an amount of oil that would equal one hour of light is the equivalent of like a silver piece because light is basically life down there because almost all creatures need to see and because sight is so valuable for so many reasons. Um, additionally, uh, the um, the, res the 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 gear and the what am I thinking of treasure that you find um, is kind of tangential to resource but also very flavorful of of that place. If you're right. doing any type of trading in the game, if you're doing any type of thing like that, um, what people consider valuable, even if it's not necessarily natural resource or usable, um, is flavorful to the setting. So in Yun Sin, which is a sort of uh, India and um, sort of Indochina and, and, and Eastern inspired um, campaign setting, uh, you're going to see a lot of people trading in in jade, in tea leaves, in opium, because like those are the things that are flavorful of that setting. Whereas it's going to be gold and silver and electrum and just fine um, tapestries and whatnot in like a D and D style medieval setting. Um, in the veins of the earth, it would be um, sort of like uncut gems. It would be like the skulls of like creatures. It would be certain types of uh, pigments uh, and 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 those sorts of things, and. In uh, the ultraviolet grasslands uh, from Lucareic, which is um, a setting that kind of draws on one of my touchstones is Destiny, the video game, because it's sort of like psychedelic um, space fantasy. Magic. Yeah, yeah, space kind of space magic where it's clear that there's been like former civilizations and there's remnants of like great uh, arcs and things like that. Uh, but the things that you might be um, trading in are like strange fruits and um, like narcotic powders and um artifacts from previous worlds and those sorts of things so uh it's it's a lot different to the setting and um not it's not just set dressing either because that that stuff can can matter there is um a table of like things that can happen to you on a failed carouse roll in that game and one other thing is like if you were trading strange fruits uh one of them was stranger than it should have been and it changed you in some way and there's like a little like table of like weird mutations that can happen to you and so that's if it was just a bunch of gold that you had in your hoard then that that same thing couldn't happen so it's that's a sort of dungeon world principle of um change the things to match the flavor and then follow what they actually are 
in the fiction and see where it goes. Um, so you can sort of swap things out, but things work differently. I, when I first saw that was kind of with, um, Dungeon World weapons. Like, the fact that there's a, uh, a set damage die for each class means that it kind of doesn't matter at any moment, like what weapon you have in your hand, because you're going to do damage. Um, but it also does <laughs> because yeah. fictionally, it, it, like you kind of follow along and those weapons, you think about what they are and think about the limitations and think about the consequences. And that's how it works. Yeah. So. One thing that I've done before is what I've, what I've referred to as a texture swap in dungeon world. If you just say, Oh, you're, why don't we, instead of having a bow and arrow, we give you a laser gun. It works the same way as the bow and arrow. You still have to load your laser and, and draw the string and fire off one laser at a time, but it's still a laser bow and arrow. It doesn't really change the fictional position, or it changes the fictional positioning a lot. It doesn't really change the mechanical positioning at all. And then it's, it's sort of a simple way to, to change the flavor of what you're doing or give people a touchstone for what the new flavor is. And in general, I think that that's true. You know, talking about loot and currencies and stuff like that as a way of managing what your touchstone is. We can go one step further with that. What's available in the shops around here? This, you know, going into actual play again, the Adventure Zone in their in their debut campaign had a recurring theme of going to this uh, going to this fantasy Costco and purchasing these wild artifacts and and weapons and tools there which would totally not be available on the main world in the main campaign but in this one place they are available and injecting sort of purchasable things that are different is another way you know for us as GMs to inject ourselves and our own ideas into our setting and move away from that baseline i remember arthur that in the adventure zone at one point there was like a vending machine of magic items yes there is which... also a there's a gotcha pond where where every mission they get a token and then they can trade that token for a random magical magic item of of sometimes dubious usefulness i, I had to look that one up uh when i first heard it but that's that's kind of like a, a, a japanese vending machine right sort of it's a it's a japanese game machine we could almost think of it as being similar to a loot box you put in your oh, token okay. and then what you get out of it is random based i think on and I, oh, I so think just on what capsule you get when it drops out. Got you. So different than a vending machine in that like you don't pick exactly what you get. Exactly. Sort of like, okay. In um, fact, it's more analogous to the if you I don't know if you had a dentist with one of these growing up, but um, there's a, my dentist had a gumball machine, except instead of gumballs, it was random toys. Yeah, they have those in a lot of American supermarkets. Yeah, precisely those where you put in a quarter and then you walk away with something something probably worth less than a quarter mm -hmm. Typically, <laughs> the, uh, yes. well that's how they make money the um idea of that fantasy vending machine though is really interesting because it says a lot about the setting it says that this is a world where there's a sort of it, it a light tone um because it's so, sort of like that tongue-in-cheek role play but it also mm -hmm. says that um low-level magic items are a dime a dozen maybe literally like that's and 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 that that you can follow that through and let that inform like the rest of your world building if that's the type of thing that you want to go for sure and um that's something that is it it both reduces the cognitive load because it's tangential to things that we already know it has enough hooks that we can easily get behind it mechanically it adds little to nothing like you said that texture swap that if you just treat it like a bow and arrow or it's like when you give a monster and you say just as owl bear but it's different but it's a stepping, uh, jumping off point because the smart player 
we'll think about what are the consequences, because these things surely aren't exactly the same, and then we'll do things with that. If you put a laser gun instead of a bow and arrow in the hands of a savvy player, they're going to try to do things with that laser gun that bows and arrows can't do, like start fires, like ricochet shots off mirrors, like just they're going to push the envelope with that. And that's great. That's when you start getting into what makes the setting unique. What types of stories could we tell here that we couldn't tell anywhere else? Which I think if you're not answering that question, then it's all just set dressing and it's not yeah. a, a rich world, you know? And, and I'm not going to spoil it, but in the Adventure Zone, there is a concrete justification for why you get magic items out of this random chance machine. And it's hilarious. And also maps very deftly to the setting. Right on the money <laughs> with it. So the, it's a point of inspiration, which could be a joke, but then also says something deeper about the world. All right, Arthur, all-time favorite setting. I know it's going to be hard to pick. Um, um, or at least just what's, like, hot for you right now. Oh, well, th I, I can give you my all-time favorite setting, although it's not really a tabletop setting exactly. It is a setting from a book. Okay. Um, I would like to posit the the world in which the Phantom Tollbooth takes place is my favorite setting of all time. Have you read the Phantom Tollbooth? I actually have not, unfortunately. I highly recommend it. It is a children's book. I read it when I was, I think, probably six or seven years old, and I've read it many times since then. The The core idea or the guiding principle of the setting is it's turns of phrase, but taken literally, idioms taken literally, and then presented as real things and places and people to interact with. Um, the, the book follows the quest of a young boy who's bored with everything in the real world, taking this this voyage through a literal place at one point he makes an assumption about something and is immediately transported to the island of conclusions as he has jumped there and then the only way back is to swim through i believe the sea of certainty it, it's very much uh it's it's very much an imaginative book that is about looking at the real world in a weird way and it's also very gonzo it's very much in the abstract oh the rules are weird and we don't necessarily know them side of things but i think it's just a great example of a setting that is so powerful and and really gets its claws in you and and if your touchstone is if it's an english idiom take it literally that's fun what's an example of uh, something from the book like that that was taken literally sure so let me think at one point the um Oh, this is a great one. At one point, the hero meets a, uh, a a character who doesn't change his perspective throughout his life as he grows. He is born with his feet, you know, four or five feet off the ground. And then as he grows up, his feet gradually get closer and closer to the ground until eventually he is at his full height. And over the course of his life, he doesn't change his perspective at all. He's always looking down from the height that his adult self would look down from. Which is really sort of a lesson about, oh, you know, as we grow up, our perspective changes, not only literally and physically, but also mentally. You know, the way we look at the world changes. And here's what huh. it would look like if someone didn't have that. Here's how it would be different. Weird. Um, yeah. There's That's... another there's another moment when the main character is eating something and is told to ask for whatever he would like to eat. And so he says, oh, I'd like a nice light meal. And then from the kitchen comes a streaming beam of light. <laughs> which he can't eat. Um, and then he asks for a square meal, and he ends up with squares. That's that sort of very literal, you know, very much of, it's, it's very much the, you know, oh, hi, I'm dad kind of uh, version of the world, which is something that I still find really, uh, really appealing. There's um, 
uh, that's kind of smacks of uh, one aspect of Invisible Sun for me because the Forte abilities are kind of like whatever your character's like unique shtick is. And one of the players in my game has uh, turns tails into reality as their Forte ability. And one of the uh, powers in that ability is um, from metaphor, where the character can like say a metaphor and then like get a related effect. Um, so I've seen them do like sharp as attack to like damage people mm-hmm. and you know just stuff like raining that. cats and dogs oh yes all all of the above um what about you Eamon? for me i'm a total setting fiend and so it's it always ends up me wanting to play planescape because i can just throw everything in there and be like yes and this also exists and you guys can travel through the ether and through the through the astral plane and go there but i think that's kind of a cheat because that's sort of a mashup of settings rather than a setting uh, unto itself but i think uh the ultraviolet grasslands is probably what's been on my mind a lot lately um it does something that other other settings kind of shy away from which is uh scale of time and travel like the ultraviolet grassland says there's this massive plane and everything is just really far apart and it takes weeks to get anywhere and there's a mechanic in the game for like arbitrating overland travel uh, in the scale of weeks and um su- uh, cash and and supplies are tracked in uh units that could like sustain someone for like weeks instead of just like per night rations and that sort of thing um but the setting itself is so colorful it's like it's kind of you're sort of traveling to like the edge of the known world um and like i said before it's this sort of science fantasy thing where there are these things um there are such races as the uh the porcelain princes, which are these sort of like perfect people, and um, they certain people in that society are uh, are polyforms, which means that they're like one mind, but they like accrue multiple bodies over time that are all just mentally linked, kind of like um, kind of like uh, Unity from from that one Rick and Morty episode where she's like a hive mind, although usually it's on the scale of like between like three to six of these things. Um, other things in the world would be the the spectrum satraps, which are kind of like uh, they're they're remnants of a different situation where they're wearing these like giant sort of hazmat suits and like power suits. And there are rumors that uh, that there's actually nothing inside the suits that that is like what they are. There are these like cat people that aren't like Tabaxi like from D and D, but they're just actual cats, and they like psionically enslave humans to like uh just serve them into like a weight hand and foot on them but it's not always apparent to visitors that that's what's happening people think the cats are the ones that are the pets and just stuff like that which is it's this very sort of dreamlike and, and surreal uh setting and and not everything is fully explained in the source material all of those races i just described all those cultures are presented as just a big rumor table uh of things that are um you could kind of just run as is they're um they're only slightly contradictory at times but um, if not, it fully enables you to play to find out because if you kind of say something and the characters hear it, then they can go and find out and determine if that's actually true. And if they have a better idea, then that might become what the reality is. Um, like that whole thing I said about like there's no one inside the suits, like that's just something people say. Like who knows if that's true? And the game kind of presents it in that way to you, which is really handy because it's it, it 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 speaks to me of a designer that knows what people actually do at the table and is interested in making things useful and gameable. Yeah, I love I it. I love yeah. it when rumor is a mechanic or a point of inspiration for settings. That's a lot of fun. All right. Very cool. Well, we're losing altitude just a bit. Oh um, no, we better lighten like the load. Absolutely. Uh, there, there's. I, I think that there's a, a menagerie on board, so 
we can kind of take a look at what we want to kick off. Yeah, let, let's wanna... jump in there, see if anything with uh, with wings is available to us. Oh, look, there is here on Adventure Workshop Menagerie. Today we're going to be talking about the Dragon Whelp. Eamon, do you know anything about the Dragon Whelp? Whelp? I guess I'm about to. You better believe it. So, the Dragon Whelp is from page 246 of the book. It is a solitary, small, intelligent, cautious hoarder. Those are its tags. It has elemental breath with D10 plus 2 damage, 16 hit points, much like a large dragon, 3 armor, which is less than a full-size dragon. Its tags are close and near for its elemental breath, and it has special qualities, wings, and elemental blood. Now, I'm not going to read the full, uh, the full paragraph here, but I will jump ahead to the, the instinct and the moves. Instinct, to grow in power. And moves, start a lair, form a base of power. Call on family ties and demand oaths of servitude. So what we're dealing with here is a young dragon, a dragon who is not yet full-sized, but who is still in many ways as threatening as one of its more full-grown brothers and sisters. I In a lot of games, this is sometimes referred to as a drake, and I've seen different takes on whether it? it's just a young dragon or some some great games uh, treat drakes as a different thing entirely. Sure, they, like, I've always treated it as a different or... thing. Uh, here, like yeah. a, to me, ex explicitly, a dragon whelp is a young dragon, which I um, love. That I like. I love that it's specified out as its own separate creature. Right, because it allows you to kind of still have the Dungeons and Dragons experience, you know, without having to wait to level twenty to like even reasonably approach a dragon. Um, additionally, this thing is kind of a living um, campaign uh, or a living front, don't you think? Oh, totally. That if you leave it alone, like eventually you'll have a full dragon on your hands yeah. to deal with. Because not to mention each of these moves. Power. Each of these moves could be a grim portent. Starting a lair slash forming a base of power, I would write that as a grim portent as something like um, the uh, the summit of Mount Skull is uh, is claimed, and then um, you know the the eruptions the eruptions begin again, stronger and more frequent than ever. And that's both of us like a location front and a character front sort of tied into one with this dragon whelp taking on this place of power and growing. I like the idea as well that you can do the classic like they encounter a bear cub and then mama bear is nearby, of course, uh -oh. like with the dragon whelp. You can kind of do that version where Colin family ties with like, oh, we're a match for this thing. And they're like, nope, territorial no. Not to mention, mama dragon. Most groups will not be a match for a dragon whelp any more than they'd be a match for a dragon. I want to say again, 16 hit points, just like the full-sized dragon, which means that we're all about fictional positioning when we're fighting this thing. Right. Yeah, I think that um, the size is going to be is going to be the thing that you're going to have to take yeah. advantage of here, if and, anything. And I want to just read out the last line from the paragraph here. Size is not the only measure of might. True. It's, it says it could still breathe fire just as a, just as a real dragon. Um, additionally, the last uh, bullet point is one that's most interesting to me. Demand oaths of servitude. Mm -hmm. I like the idea that the, there's like sort of pipsqueak type dragon that's just sort of like swear fealty to me. Yeah, we, we can really go anywhere from Mushu scale to, you know, Ouroboros, or not Ouroboros. Uh, jo wait, what's the name of the Jormungandr? Jormungandr scale. There we go. Yeah. When we're talking about our dragons. All right. One unconventional use for a dragon. Well, go ahead, Arthur. Oh, boy. Um, well, I love your idea of you've got a little dragon whelp that's kind of hanging around with you. And I think I saw an RPG Tumblr post a little while ago 
of a dragon whelp that is very small and just has a couple of coins in its hoard. So every night it takes its two coins out of its wallet and just makes a little mound of them and curls up on top of it. <laughs> it's like baby's first hoard. Exactly. Uh, my, uh, my unconventional use for the dragon whelp would be to use it as a way to signal the power of a different creature entirely. Um, like, for example, if I wanted to show how powerful a um, a rock was, um, and by that I mean, like, ROC, like, one of those, like, giant birds, or mm-hmm. I wanted to show how powerful, like, a certain, like, eldritch being was, I might have a dragon whelp, like, encounter the party, like, come out of, like, the woods or, like, swoop down or, like, come uh, around the corner of the dungeon or whatever, and then have it, like, sort of rear up and, like, roar at them and breathe a little bit of fire or lightning or whatever, and then instantly be, like, snapped up by like something else ah the always just, a bigger like, munches fish it. like yeah like there's always a bigger fish in the sea mm-hmm. like that one moment from star wars where yep. they like see that horrifying big thing and then nope that's not what you should be scared of there's a bigger one yeah for me the that gives me a sort of a similar idea of the you know the party is in the woods it's dark it's quiet and then they hear the shriek and the thump and the the whirling of winds as the dragon lands amongst them and it's badly wounded and it goes to them for help and it says all right Y'all are my my thralls now. You all work for me. Now go and get me some bandages because I'm going to die otherwise. That that right there would be a really fun campaign start. Maybe even a sort of one-shot start. In um in the veins of the earth, there's a sort of interesting take on young dragons where uh there are these things called oolites or something like that. Um I'll have to I'll have to look it up, but they're basically like unborn dragons that are like undead so they're like dragons that were sort of like just broken as eggs or like miscarried or what have you and they're just this very like playful like childlike undead but that like doesn't know their own strength because they're still like draconic and they're very weird um and it's sort of like they have this sort of infantile mentality and there's like this table of what their motivations might be and that stuff but yeah it's very sort of unnerving in the way that everything is in veins of the earth all right well as is, this menagerie cage can definitely drop without harming the dragon whelp inside. So I'd say let's get it out of here, get some ballast cast off, and see if we can regain some altitude before we run full force into this upcoming mountain range. That wouldn't be very safe. Yeah, we got we got to stay safe up here. We got to be safe up here, and that actually brings us to our meta talk conversation for the day. We want to change gears a little bit and go over some strategies that we like. uh, And we've alluded to this already. We want to go over some strategies that we like for being safe at the table when we play tabletop role-playing games. It has been, I think, a year, a calendar year, in which a lot of us have had our eyes opened to the ways in which this hobby can be difficult or challenging or mentally taxing for people. And today, we're going to take the opportunity to share some ways that we like to keep our tables safe and fun for everybody involved. And you have a couple of guidelines for things like finding a random one-shot group and dealing with a, with a party member or, or a co-player that is challenging or that is, uh, that is not treating the game with the same, uh, the same perspective as everybody else. So let's talk safety. I think one of the highest level um, rules for me uh, in terms of not getting down into specifics, but as like a general principle is uh, don't be afraid of awkwardness uh, because a lot of times awkwardness is just created by people like 
deciding to act a certain way based on a certain thing. I think there's a key and feel skit about that where this guy's saying awkward to like everything that someone says. And he's like, no, it's not awkward. You're just saying that and encouraging people to do things that are traditionally, um, might, might be like stigmatized as awkward, but that are actually helpful behaviors like using an X card, you know, and stuff like that is really helpful. And just, and just, yeah. um, being the leader at the table to be like, no, dude, that's okay. Totally. That's totally. We're all cool with that. What's an X card? So, X card is um what is considered by the 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 movers and shakers of like this side of the RPG community I suppose uh, to be a safety tool which is basically just a mechanized or formalized way of giving people an outlet to express how they're feeling about um the game in terms of content um the X card is it's either a um a code or a physical artifact if you're playing an online game people might uh type x into the chat they might say x card out loud they might put up their hands like an x in front of them on uh, on video or if you're playing in a physical game you can have a physical card at the table marked with an x something that's clear that you've talked about beforehand and then people can simply touch the card and that's their way of signaling that whatever's going on right now um they are not comfortable with and that's their way of yeah that's their way of just quickly and succinctly saying that and it's designed to be a way for people to be comfortable enough to actually say that because a lot of times um, with issues like this, it's not always cut and dry and like egregious. It's not always that the GM or a player is going to whip out of nowhere like and then a really just problematic scene happens where there's just massive just violence and, and just thresholds being crossed. It's a lot of times that gray area. And so you want people to not feel like they're just being picky. You want them to you, you want to err on the side of, uh, you know, making your friends feel comfortable and not you know totally giving them a bad experience that they're later going to think that yeah actually i was really uncomfortable there and i just wasn't able to say anything so next card's the kind of elegant way to to do that um it can be as simple as um you're like all right and then the wizard shows off his new spell he he summons um a human and 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 he he says this is my new spell it's called catherine and a player touches the x card and you're like oh hey uh jimmy what's up touch the x card he's like uh, I'm sorry. Just Catherine's a trigger word for me. Uh, I I think so. That spell is really messed up. Or yeah. Oh yeah. Sorry, or, yeah. Different angles or, on. But yeah. Sure. Even just even just like they're like just personal history. Don't want right. to go into it. Can we just not have the name be Catherine here? Totally. And they're like, sure. Just change it and move on. Yeah. That's just just an easy way. So if someone touches the X card, you quickly ask them. You say, do you want to take a break or are you comfortable talking about this now? And just let them have things beyond their terms just for that yeah and then one key on. thing though with the x card that we have to make sure we're uh, that i want to make sure we're clear about is when you touch the x card you're not under any obligation to explain why you touched the x card you're at most it, it is i think socially acceptable acceptable to say hey this is what needs to change in order for me to be comfortable continuing but touching sure. the x card yeah. doesn't put you at any obligation to explain why whatever you're doing right now isn't working for you which I sure. think is another thing that it's hard to do unless you set that up as a table expectation to begin with. It's definitely intimidating to say, I don't want to get into it, but we cannot talk about dogs in this game. Um, and it's much easier to do that if we have a if we have a mechanism which just says, no questions asked, we, we love and respect you enough to change the way we're playing this to accommodate your needs. Yep, absolutely. Um, being a good... Uh participant in that system is to give uh, enough people enough open communication that they know what you need and like can help you so like if it's ambiguous 
telling them like um, this is what needs to change. And also if you're the facilitator or the GM um, or the person who's overseeing or introducing that safety mechanic, um, knowing the right questions to ask and giving people space, not being like, oh, Jimmy, you're uncomfortable now. What's this? Tell everyone why you had a problem with this. No, if, if you need to pull them aside, if you need to call a little break, like it's going to be up to your skills to judge uh, the tone of that situation. If they're obviously distraught or if it's like really serious, uh, they might not be able to communicate it right there and then, in which case it might be smart to call for a break. But if not, you just be like, yo, what's up? Uh, yeah. Uh, what do you want us to change? And then they might be right. able to just tell you right a, a there. Great, a great way to handle it is the way that you suggested earlier, which is you ask, hey, do you want to talk about it? Or, you know, maybe a little bit more delicately than that, but give them the opportunity in a no pressure sense to talk about it if they want to. And if they don't, then just say, that's fine. How should we handle it instead? And go from there. So that's a really great mechanism for signaling a need for more safety in the moment. But then there are also a couple of great preemptive moves that I always use in one shots that I absolutely love because I think that they're very valuable and useful. And those are lines and veils. Eamon, have you used those? Um, I have. Um, lines, li- lines and veils are a way of, before, like you said, preemptive, like before problematic content comes up, already getting a pulse of the room and knowing uh, what are fraught areas that you don't, uh, that people don't want to go into, and what their limits might be. The difference is a line is uh, this cannot happen in the game. Um, it, I, I. I'm not comfortable with this being in the game in any form. Uh, that's a, a line uh, that you don't want to cross. That's why it's called that. And a veil is, I'm okay with this being in the game as long as it's not explicit. Like, it can happen off screen, it can be alluded to, but I don't want to, us to get into vivid descriptions of this thing because it'll make me uncomfortable. And yeah. it can be more than just, you know, sexual things that you might think. It, it can be, uh, like, just abuse of children yeah. or uh, absolutely racism or just the uh, violence against minorities like maybe the person deals with that enough in real life that they just not don't have to think about it for this afternoon that they're trying to relax like i had a player who was a a lawyer in one of my games who dealt with a lot of cases of uh domestic violence and especially child abuse and he was saying that like i've spent enough time at work like having to look at pictures from case files and just dealing close up with just the pain that this can cause i'd really like there not to be child abuse in this game just just let's not have it. Yeah. Thing. And I was actually, like, okay, I yeah. can, I can play with that. Anybody who's played with me in a one shot or longer campaign setting knows that one of the lines I always establish is no violence against children every single time. And that has come up a couple of times where I've had to say, Hey, we're crossing my line right now. We need to, st- we need to scale this back or approach it differently, or I will be out of this. Um, and I've never had a situation where people haven't respected that and worked well to deal with it. Uh, and so it's important that when we, you know, when we go out into the world and have these games, that we set those things up in advance so that it's not a surprise to anybody. Yeah. Yeah, and I think um, for people that aren't familiar with this stuff or that just this hasn't been an element of their home games, a lot of times it seems just like overly sensitive or it seems like people are making a big deal out of things or people are, you know, being babies or whatever, but that's not how it happens. Not like, even at all, if you, at all if, no. if, you, if you get out enough to see people with all different experiences... Uh, you can understand that people's backgrounds can just be so different of where they're coming from that that's why these things need to exist. Is It's too easy to talk over each other. It's too easy to sacrifice uh, people's ability to be comfortable and then feelings get hurt. The really, really low end of the spectrum is stuff that doesn't even necessarily deal with problematic content but deals with people just not being listened to. They're just like, hey, I would love in this game for me to get to do my cool thing and really just show the 
elements of my class and and for there to be times when they're looking for that that that's being totally ignored is a, a, a way of just unintentionally marginalizing something that spiraled into systematic overtime areas is why these types of problems exist on a larger scale and it kind of like filters back yeah. to the game so think about like how uncomfortable it is for someone to just ignore you or for someone to just uh gloss over the part of the game that you were looking forward to or just introduce elements that you specifically asked them if you could just not do like grindy combat or something and just making a whole thing out of it imagine that but even you know more charged that's right. that's how, that's Im- how it imagine is, that so. but with severe emotional consequences that you carry sure. with you yeah. outside of the game um so yeah those are lines and veils i also have one safety mechanism that i like to use in my games that i don't think is really a formal one a formally specified one and it really can be covered by lines and veils and X cards without a lot of trouble. But I love to use the movie rating system, which for me has always been a great way of setting a t- like a touchstone for what kind of tone we're going for at the beginning of the game. Uh, I'll basically just say, hey, we're about to start playing together. Of the MPAA mainstream movie ratings that we see in America, which are G, PG, PG-13, and R, what rating are we at and why do we have that rating? Which is a great way for us to say at the beginning, oh, we're PG-13, and that means that we're going to be sensitive about our use of of dirty language, and we're going to be relatively restrained in our descriptions of violence, and we're going to make death something that happens to henchmen and unnamed characters, or whatever it happens to mean. Or we're going to play an R-rated game, and it's going to be rated R for uh, adult language. Which means, oh, we're going to curse a whole bunch. And also, it's going to be rated R for violence. And then we're going to get real violent with it. But that's it. Which means that any R-rated content outside of those reasons is off the table. Unless we really decide that we want to to get into it when we're playing. So that's been one thing that's been great for one-shots. is a shorthand for what kind of behavior is acceptable and what kind of behavior is not as we play our characters. I like that as a holdover of the principle of giving people a touchstone. So they say, like, how much is too much? Here's an example, like here's a touchstone that you kind of use as guidelines because most people are in the U.S. are familiar with those ratings. So yeah. that's really good, Arthur. Cool. All right. So those are some well, safety mechanisms that we really like. Um, I think that covers a lot of the ones we'll want to talk about, but this is going to be an ongoing conversation. It's not going to be the last time we bring this up on the show. So get excited for in more. F- in fact, if you want to see a community that uh, is really passionate about making this uh a a pillar of their community that they're they're they care about these sorts of issues and is also just really fun to play with uh check out the gauntlet uh gauntlet community they have a an online convention coming up so if you're like on the on the discord and you like to uh, play online games with folks they have something called gauntlet con which is like a virtual convention so if you're like me and you sadly miss gen con uh, and you want to hear a bunch of nerdy panels and play in a bunch of games. I'm actually running two sessions at Gauntlet Con. I believe it's oh, really? uh, October 18th through 21st, and it'll all be through like Google Hangouts. Interesting. So yeah, I think I'm I'm running a session of Troika and a session of uh, Odd Dungeons, which is like a a sort of D and D a la Into the Odd. Cool. Well, everyone, you should get you should rush to sign up for that because if you don't, I will. Uh, and I will take up a space from someone else who wants to play with Eamon in the upcoming Gauntlet Con. That sounds great. I'm, I'm probably going to participate in this in some way. This is yeah, all very it's, cool. It's on, a, it's on a, I think, a Thursday through like a Sunday afternoon. Like there's stuff just going on all day, every day. Oh, that so sounds fantastic. My, my games are both on Saturday. Yeah. And, what a, and what a great like community. There's 
there's a lot of focus on safety and good attitudes towards it in that community. And I think that is a wonderful thing to have as the lifeblood of how you expect your, your members to behave. Oh yeah. It, it, it feels just like a very adult community in the sense that they have their stuff together. Like yeah. if you're running a game for gauntlet con, there's a handbook that you have to read of just like, this is the expectations if you're going to be representing our community. And one of the things it's mandated that like at minimum in your game, you have to have the X card available and you have to at least have a quick lines and veils discussion. Yeah. But uh, th it, that's the minimum. There are other safety tools beyond that you could use, but yeah, that's always been a requirement with games on demand as well, which I've done a few times at conventions in person. Um, to the point where I actually have a little a little index card. I'm gonna. I one of my goals now that I have a laser cutter at work is to laser cut out a nice wooden X card and maybe make a few of those so I can hand them out and let other people uh, take them as well. That's awesome. That'd be a, a fun uh, t uh, party favor or token at at conventions. Totally. Walk away with. All right. I I think I'm feeling pretty safe. But looking ahead out the uh, at the view uh, the at the uh, spyglass here, it looks like we're coming upon some six dimensional weather. Oh, geez, six dimensional weather. What is that? I can't even picture this. <laughs> oh gosh. All right. Here we go. So, um, I've been just so my my my, my picture of this more generally has just been troika for like the past week because um it's one of my favorite little indie games and and we talked about it i think uh, i think last time but um i found out something i didn't know which is that aside from there being a new kickstarter for uh troika running uh there's a blog that the creator has been running all this time under my nose and so now i have all these articles to look back on and one of the ones that i found was this little article about six dimensional weather um Daniel Sell is the creator of Troika, and he's really into hex crawls. And he puts out this little booklet called Pocket Dimensions, which are these little A5 size booklets that you can buy that are just full of blank um, little um, hexes. And you can kind of, for your own world, just use that as a notebook to like make your own hex crawls. And he, I, I assume, was toying around with his own just stack of copies of those little books and was using them for things other than maps. And he made a weather table out of a hex map, um, and he called it six-dimensional weather. And I'm going to link to this because you kind of have to see it. But basically, the way it works is that you start this little dot uh, in the middle, which represents the current day. And then you roll a d6 and uh, for the next day, and that represents which direction um, the dot moves onto which next hex. And the hex that it moves into will be the weather for the next day. And so you kind of chart this path as the dot moves. And you can kind of look back and see a chronologue of, uh, for the past week, what's the weather been like and what's been moving. And then you can also create different regions where if you make a big area of like all rainy hexes, then that means that like there's the possibility that it can, there can be a rainy season that will just sort of organically happen as the dot sort of gets trapped in that rainy mm. area of the hexes. Additionally, you can swap these out and have different tables really easily for, um, uh, different settings. Like if they, if players go to a different land and it just rains a lot more often, or if there's really weird weather, like the iron wind from Numenera or the key falls from Invisible Sun, you can represent that on the map and make places feel different. And it's a lot easier than just looking at like an eye-watering table of just text and just ton tons of entries they have to parse for the weather. Um, it's colorful, it's visual, and it's it's great. I, please check the link out because uh, it explains it really well there. Yeah, six-dimensional weather. Also, with my mind that is just obsessed with these Planescape games, I imagine taking that literally, and then I imagine that the plane of existence or the sphere that the um, 
that the game is taking place in in the language of troika they talk about all the different worlds as these different crystal spheres um that that is the thing that's moving and that the universe is sort of this like static backdrop and so there might be patches of rain just sort of hang in the air in the universe and as your sphere sort of careens and wheels through those that's what's causing weather so as your sphere kind of like moves through those dimensions and orients itself differently to the kind of like atmospheric backdrop i like to imagine that that's what's creating weather which really makes sense when you look at these little um charts these little hexes because you can imagine that like the plane of existence is actually traveling through these different areas of weather yeah so yeah that and now that <laughs> that might be a little head bending yeah but. well now that you've got six dimensional weather on the mind i love the idea then of us using a given dimension as a way to travel through other dimensions more quickly tesseract style it's given me this notion of oh i've got a ship and if that ship gets struck by lightning then it allows us to phase into the thunder sphere and then from the thunder sphere we can get to anywhere else where a thunderstorm is happening currently and that sounds pretty yeah. cool. I don't know. I think that's that's a really neat idea. It's like, oh, we, we need to find a particular weather pattern, and then we can use that to transport ourselves. That's, yeah, th that solves the problem of transport, which is present in a lot of media. Mm -hmm. That's why the whole um, teleportation circles exist in D&D &D and are often used, and that's why hyperspace exists in, like, every hey, sci-fi ever. Speaking of which, back to our world-building conversation and our setting conversation earlier, here's another thing that we should use as a touchstone. How do you get from one place to another? Are you taking horses? Are you taking trains? Are you swimming? Are you taking a boat? Are you taking a spaceship? That right there, the answer to that question has so much to do with what your setting is. I'm surprised we didn't oh, think yeah. about it earlier. And there's, you can go into really interesting spaces with it. I remember in the, uh, in the initial world building session, the session zero of the woman with hollow eyes, uh, playthrough of invisible sun that the, um, that the uh, one shot podcast uh community did is um they they were talking about how do people get around in the city and one player suggested that there are these uh sidewalks that curve around the city and when you stand on the sidewalk the rest of the world moves around you and then you step off the sidewalk where you want to go cool. the sidewalk is sort of this weird monorail that like rotates the world very cool well that all additionally yeah <laughs> Sorry, one, one more out reference because my brain's just on fire with all these Do it up. references. But um, uh, the most recent episode as of the time of recording of the Fear of a Black Dragon podcast from the Gauntlet community that we talked about was called The Gardens of Yin, talking about Noah's R setting, um, which was actually written by the same people that write Troika, but they inspired the people uh, that run that podcast um to talk about uh, connective tissue sort of between worlds and how you can use a certain setting as a, a way to provide um, respite and also like connection between other settings like you were like you were saying Arthur like maybe the astral plane is the connective tissue that connects all these other worlds that you want or maybe this sort of garden that whenever people go into a garden they can come out into a different part of the world like the gardens of Yin has or maybe it's mirrors like you can step in one mirror out another like in a red and pleasant land. Um, or, uh, as I was thinking here with the six dimensional weather, um, the, the, the sort of the, the troposphere or whatever you have as the weather, like that's the connective tissue that like, however you interface with that, it allows you to both have interesting flavor, uh, interesting challenge because it presents its own dangers. Um, like all those things I just mentioned do, but also it's utility. It allows players to not just say I travel for weeks. So totally. All right. right. So that's picture this. Uh, now that I have a general sense of why that storm is happening, and it's because we have 
gone from hex, uh, from the good hex to the bad hex. Uh, I think it's time for us to hunker down, maybe get a couple more drinks, and respond to some emails from our listeners. And we've got one this week coming in from Aaron. Thank you, Aaron. Uh, we have the following question. I was listening to the episode where you discussed porting Cryptomancer into Dungeon World. I see how it would be easy to port a setting over, but when you're dealing with full moves and classes, how do you move these over? Just write custom moves based on what was in the original source? On a practical level, how do you distribute them to players so they know what move they have? You responded to a similar question about how far you, you how far do you go in your homebrew rules. I guess this is more of a question about translating one game into another. And that is from Aaron. Thank you for your question. Eamon, how do we do this? Man, I, I, I'm really tempted to just say, Arthur, can we like save this for next episode? Because for me, this could fill a whole um, meta talk and adventure workshop. Yeah. So maybe, just, maybe. Because I've got a lot of thoughts on this. Why don't we so. give our snap judgments now and then we'll come back to it next week with a lot more detail? Because this is definitely something that deserves the full episode treatment. Sure thing. So. My snap judgment would be, uh, it depends how far you want to go. You can make it a simple custom move, or if you want it to inform how the whole world works, um, then you're going to have to do some more uh, work there. Specifically with his issue of talking about Cryptomancer, um, I've done it to greater and less effect. Cryptomancer itself um, is basically already a fairly generic fantasy world that adds that one element of shards that let people communicate over long distances, and the whole game is about exploring how that changes everything how you can't just add something like that to a, a fantasy world without it influencing everything from politics to warfare to all that but i have um seen people put shards in the game and not have it go that far and just be like maybe only the party has shards and it's just a way to kind of be like yeah they can communicate even when they split up in the dungeon i've also seen people uh my friends that i've introduced it to take it in different directions um, I had a friend who did a campaign where every player had a shard, but they weren't to talk to each other with. They were to, like, store their souls. So if they died and their friends were able to recover the shard, they could implant it into a new body, and the character could just resume playing with that body. Uh, kind of like how the stacks work in the Netflix show Altered Carbon. Um, I mean, which is also based on a book called Altered Carbon. But yeah, so it's kind of... It, they kind of took the idea of shards and made it more into a soul stone. And that really wouldn't take that much to change... Uh, a game you can just be like yeah if your character dies and your um that your friends are able to find your body then they can implant you into a new body no big deal just custom move just letting you know guys that's on the table but at the same time if you want it to be like what would a society be like where everyone has access to this then you're gonna have some more work to do you might have you know whole just scales of power and and dynamics changing and you might want to write custom classes and moves and like it, you know it, it might change a lot so it, it just depends how far you want to go totally be my answer um coming at it from a slightly different angle i want to give my snap judgment on the subject with regard to playbooks specifically one thing that we have to be careful of is what does a playbook mean in one system versus another for instance dungeon world says that if you are playing a particular playbook that that is because you are that playbook there isn't another wizard there isn't another paladin there are other holy knights and there are other mages but the the honor of being the wizard is something that's pretty limited, basically to you alone, at least as I've always interpreted it. But then if we look at something like Dungeons and Dragons, or at least, you know, again, how I interpret Dungeons and Dragons, every NPC could have a character sheet specked out for them to say, oh, this is my orc wizard. And this orc wizard has the same spells at level three as your wizard that you are playing as a character, et cetera, et cetera. 
And then there's something like The Sprawl, where not only is a given playbook explicitly not special, but it even encodes it as when your character dies, because they will die, they can be replaced by someone who was equally capable because every playbook is so represented. Everyone is available. Yeah, um, life is cheap. Skill is easy to find. Exactly. Yeah. So when we're making a move from one system to another, like if I wanted to take my my The Sprawl class and put it into Dungeon dungeon World, you know, that requires me to think about what mean, what is different you know, if, if a character dies in Dungeon World, that has a very different meaning than if it dies in the Sprawl. And while that might be a challenging port to justify in the first place, it is how I would at least start thinking about it. So thank you for your Which question, is, Aaron. <laughs> I think that's a very salient example for this question because yeah. Cryptomancer is kind of like cyberpunk fantasy. So yeah, yeah. very true. Anyway, cool. So we'll, we'll more on that later. We'll get some thought yeah. to that, and we'll get back to you next week because I think that that is a crazy interesting question. Well, that is it for our prepared content today. But we do have one final, very exciting announcement. Long overdue. We're sorry again for the missed episodes this month, but it's time for us to announce the winner of our character contest. This was a really fun right. contest. We read through some of the some of the best entries that we saw uh, on our last episode, and now. We are thrilled to announce the winner, a very clever take on a beloved character that I don't think either of us saw coming. Congratulations to, drumroll please, Amen. go for it. I don't have a drum handy. Yeah, neither do I. I'm like literally hitting objects and myself. All right, this is audio torture. So we're just going to say it. Congratulations to my own little world with your submission of Ian Malcolm, the wizard. We will link yes. to the character sheet, the completed character sheet on the website from the show notes. But again, a, just a fantastic take on a great character and totally out of left field. We had no idea that we could possibly expect something like that. So congratulations uh, to our now twice winner of our contests. And I promise it's not because no one else is joining them. Uh, so... <laughs> Get excited. We will announce a new contest sometime in the next couple of episodes. And in the meantime, you can join the community by hanging out with us on Discord in the podcast channel and beyond. We try to be active. We try to have fun over there. We also are available on Twitter at play number two find out. And you can leave us a review on iTunes. We would love to just see what your feedback is. We've been really excited by the feedback we've seen so far just really beautiful and wonderful and it fills us with joy to know that what we're doing is making something happen for other people so if you like what we're doing and you want to show your support review us on itunes because unfortunately for discoverability purposes that's what matters but with that in mind i think this zeppelin is coming to a halt we're starting our slow laborious descent i think i see a dragon whelp angrily flying towards us now too so amen we should probably get ready for that yeah, grab a parachute. I, I think we should, we need to All go right, now. time to ditch. <laughs> All right. All right. Take care, listeners, and see you uh, uh, on the ground, uh, hopefully uh, in one piece. We'll catch you next time on Play to Find Out. Mm -hmm.